Whenever I have the opportunity to talk to people about the Quran, about the Book of Allah, I usually start the conversation here that this is for you. The relationship with the Quran is for you. So take it with both hands. I told myself that it's like not right. It's not right for me to have the ability to recite the Quran, to memorize the Quran, and to not take this seriously. And I memorized the most Quran probably in that year, in that year. Now that doesn't make sense, but this is barakah. This is barakah. That the Quran gave me a capacity that honestly, Khadija, I feel like if it wasn't for the Quran, that wouldn't have been possible. Like that whole year, I look back at it and I think that wasn't even human. <laughs> like it wasn't even human to function in that way. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed it to be so, so I can see the evidence of this point that you're making. That Quran brings barakah. Seeing my teachers just tirelessly, tirelessly, tirelessly serve the deen, I feel like I don't have an option to give up. And especially if I claim to be a continuation of their legacy. They are a continuation of their teacher's legacy up to the Prophet who was the epitome of him and commitment and consistency and never giving up and never stopping, right? So what keeps me going is the examples I have in front of me. But these examples are not easy to find. And then that goes back to our whole conversation about being female and trying to find those opportunities and everything. But Allah will give it to those who sincerely earn it and really desire it. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome to our first episode of Women of Quran, a podcast series that we hope will shine a light on Muslims and their journey with the Book of Allah. So whether you're a hafidah or perhaps you're starting your memorization journey, um, we hope and we pray that our guests ignite your passion or motivate your relationship with the greatest book to ever exist, which is the Quran. I am your host, Khadija Mahmoud, and today we have with us our very first guest, Sara Saleh, who I'm very excited to welcome. Sara is an ustada who was born and raised in London, the UK. She spent her formative years studying Islamic studies and during her gap year, she traveled to Dallas, Texas to continue her pursuit of the sacred sciences at the Qalam Seminary. Sara, upon returning, completed her A-levels and went on to pursue a Bachelor of Science um, in Psychology um, at Queen Mary University, London. Her zeal for knowledge and desire to make a difference led her to further her studies and she took um, a Master's of Science degree in Child and Adolescent Mental Health at University College London. She recently concluded her comprehensive Alimiya studies at the Qalam Seminary and spent time in Turkey to benefit um, from her scholarship there, equipping herself with a deeper appreciation of sacred knowledge and its pursuits. Uh, currently, Sara is... Um, undergoing a level three diploma in counselling skills and she's channeling her expertise and passion as the director of Conscious, which I'm excited to hear about today, um, where she, uh, which is a dynamic third space nestled within her local community. Um, she also runs Rawasi, which is a mentoring service for teens and young adults. Sara is also almost at the brink um, of completing her very fast khatma and hifth of the Quran, which we are here to talk all about today. 
So first of all, Sara, jazakallahu khairan for coming. Um, I'm really excited to have you. Jazakallahu khairan, so happy to be here, Khadija. Wa'iyaki. So my first question to you is, where where did your Qur'an journey start? Um, when did it start? And also another question within that is, when did you feel connected with the Qur'an? So what was your first point of feeling a connection with the Book of Allah, as well as when it, the actual journey be- began? That's a really beautiful question, and it's a nice way to start. Um, obviously start with Allah's name, Bismillah, um, I love this question because it just brings back memories, you know, <laughs> of like where the journey first started. So, <clears throat> alhamdulillah, like when I, um, my journey with the Quran started when I started practicing, which I think is a very natural kind of beginning of your journey with the Quran, or people who decide to take that kind of relationship in their own hands. Like contrary to children who have the honor and the ability to kind of be raised in a household of Quran or where that's a, a primary focus from a young age. Like even though Alhamdulillah my parents they went above and beyond <clears throat> for example being in like a full time hef school or even a madrasa. That was something that was a bit foreign to us culturally. And so even though like many of my classmates, because I went to an Islamic school, many of them had that experience, I didn't have that experience. So my journey with the Qur'an started when I started getting interested in the deen, like personally. And then naturally, you know, like you get interested in the deen and you're most interested in what Allah said. So that kind of ignited the journey. And that was quite early on, alhamdulillah, like around age 15, 14, 15. So I think that was kind of where I started. Um, but because I didn't have that kind of, you know, that culture of being connected with the Quran, I was just kind of, it was just passion. Like it was just kind of like, oh, this is so cool, you yeah. know, and this, and listen to this recital and listen to that yeah. recital. It was like that initial excitement, you know, yeah. that a person feels when they first start out. So in terms of my commitment, it wasn't really there. It was just excitement. Do you, yeah. do, do you see what I'm saying? Like, there's it's one thing to be like disciplined and committed and routine, oh. and it's another thing to just be like, "Wow, this is so cool," yeah. you know. So I was in a "Wow, this is so cool" phase, yeah. <laughs> and and I think that's where my journey started. But in terms of feeling a connection with the Book of Allah, yeah, that happened later on in adulthood when you go through things in life. Yeah, you know, you go through things in life, and then the Quran speaks to you in a different way. You know, so yeah, like I think the connection started when I started. Pra- uh, sorry, the relationship or the journey started when I started practicing, but the actual meaningful connection happened later on in life. Yeah, and when would you say um, you started to formalize the process? You started to discipline the process, whether it was getting a teacher or developing a plan of your own. Yes, yeah, Um So this actually happened not too long ago. It happened twenty um, twenty. So around three three years ago, <clears throat> that's when I was just like, yeah, no, like I, Subhanallah Khadija, you know what made me just kind of feel like, okay, now I now I actually have to take this seriously and I have to see this through and I have to like, you know, I have to memorize the Quran. Yeah. <laughs> like when that happened for me, it was literally just a matter of Allah's giving you the ability to do it. You know, like I told myself that, look, alhamdulillah, I've been practicing for X amount of years. I have fluency with the Quran. I have familiarity with the Quran. I enjoy reading Quran. And there's people who don't even, they're not even there, but they've memorized. Do you know what I mean? Like they're yeah. not, they're not there, like where they have, it doesn't come that easy for them. They're yeah. memorizing, but they're also memorizing with su'uba, like with difficulty. Like it's not easy for them to like, to, to glide through the Quran, you know? So I told myself that it's like not right. 
it's not right for me to have the ability to recite the Quran, to memorize the Quran, and to not take this seriously. And especially, and that was one front, but especially because I, by that time, I had decided the line of work I wanted to go in. <clears throat> so I decided that I wanted to work in the community. I decided that I wanted to do Islamic studies full time. And some of the advice I got at that time is that it's not appropriate for someone to assume that position of leadership, of responsibility, without having the Quran as their anchor. So it just felt at that time like, you have no choice <laughs> like you have no choice you have to take this seriously um so it happened three years ago and like you mentioned alhamdulillah like we're reaching the tail end of this part of the journey alhamdulillah, yeah. alhamdulillah. and subhanallah what you said is so true about um a person who's going to take on this kind of leadership role and that kind of connection with the quran because we see examples in the seerah of the prophet muhammad وسلم, and how he treated the people of the quran like he would basically um place them even in in like battle according to quran the ones who knew more of the quran he would also lower them down in the grave according to the one who um who who memorized more in the quran and if you see the prophet muhammad bring those people forward and ahead of like other people then you know that is a manhaj that is the curriculum that is the way that we are going to be is the way to follow. So subhanAllah, it's actually a very interesting, um, uh, a very, very interesting and, and true, I think, um, perspective. I wanted to ask you, so you said people kind of telling you this, was that parents, was that, and on the same sort of line of questioning, did you find people that inspired you? Did you find women specifically who inspired you and you could kind of see as an example? Or do you think you had to find that for yourself or bring that in yourself? Hmm. This is a good question. Like, of course, on the journey, <clears throat> without a shadow of a doubt, there were people who inspired me, like yourself. Oh. <laughs> alhamdulillah, like we met in a place of the Quran. Whenever I think of you, I think of the Quran. So, alhamdulillah, Allah's been so kind to me in that sense that throughout the journey, when you go to places of the Quran, you meet the people of the Quran. But in terms of people like motivating me and encouraging me, my parents definitely encouraged me, but they didn't tell me, if that makes sense. Both my parents, may Allah bless them and raise them, they are actively memorizing the Quran right now, you know, like in, much later on in their life. Um, so if I'm able to complete, I'll be the first in my immediate family. Okay. So it, again, we didn't have that kind of culture of memory. It's like it happened over time. But there was one Ustada actually who I had one interaction with. I just had one interaction with her. She's someone I look up to and someone who I benefit a lot from. I only had one interaction with her and I told her, that, um, you know, this is what I'm trying to do with my life. These, this is the kind of training I've had. I'd really love to benefit from you. And then she said that just memorize the Quran first. And even though personally, I don't think that's a shart, like I don't think that's a condition for doing this line of work. The, just the fact that it was the way, like you said, it was done in our history. So starting with the Prophet Sallallahu and how he was with the Sahaba, and even the scholars of the past, how they would start with the memorization of the Quran and then pursue Islamic sciences. Like just, I think that in of itself is telling that there's a way to do this. You know, there's a way to do this. But in the same breath, the reason I'm being very particular about this point is because it can easily discourage a person that you're telling me I have to climb this huge mountain. And Hifl al-Quran is a huge mountain. We can't like, we can't sugarcoat it. It's not easy, right? So you're telling me that I have to climb this huge mountain before I can even have any kind of impact. That's not what we're saying. That's not what we're saying. What we are saying though, is that if in order for your impact to be true, genuine, lasting, then it needs to be done the proper way, you know? So 
sorry, I kind of, I went, I didn't really answer the question, but yes, there were people who inspired me and I saw around me, but there wasn't someone necessarily who I had with me the entirety of my journey, yeah. if that makes sense. So there were times where it did feel kind of isolated. It did feel like it's just me just trying to figure this out, just trying to do this. But there were other times where it was like, no, there's someone there to take you by the hand and walk you through it, you know? And I feel like Allah does that to encourage you, you know, 100%. to encourage you on the journey. 100%. Yeah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, like those who struggle and strive in our sake, we will guide them, like surely, lam, like litakid, like a hundred percent. And subhanAllah, I think that's one of the most like comforting ayahs. I have many questions from what you've just <laughs> asked, uh, from sorry, what you've just answered. The first one is um you were talking about in order to have a lasting impact and like Yes, it's not far to kind of like take the Quran as a companion in this journey, but in order to have lasting impact and so on. So it's almost on the topic of barakah. And how would you say that you found examples of barakah since memorize, since beginning to memorize the Quran? Uh, were there times where it is particularly notable that it the Quran or my relationship with the Quran or my commitment um, um, kind of may, must have been the one behind um you know, the success that I've encountered and whatever that you're doing? This is also a very good question. Um, you know, Khadija, I just think back to that time in 2020 when I decided that I wanted to memorize the Quran and I made that decision that I'm going to see the suit to the end. That was probably one of the busiest years of my life, like 2020 to 2021. Crazy. Like I was graduating from university in 2021. That's when I basically did crazy. That was like COVID time. And I feel like there were people who just did crazy things in COVID time in terms of just believing they can take on the world. Like working from home just became, it became the same thing as saying I can take on the world. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like people just realized how much more time they had and how much more capacity they suddenly had. You know, True. if you minus a commute, you minus this, that, like suddenly you just have like so much more time. So I filled my time to the brim in an unhealthy way, mm. <laughs> in an unhealthy way, in the sense that so I was I was doing my masters at that time, and I was also doing alimia, which was a full time commitment. But the only time, the only reason it worked out is because there was a time difference. So like in the morning, I would have my masters lectures until like mid until like you know like four five, and then from the evening until night. Uh, sorry, the, until that time, until night time, I would finish at nine every day in terms of lessons. I would do my alimiya. And I would still do Quran. And I memorized the most Quran probably in that, year, in that year. Now that doesn't make sense. Like practically, if we're talking like like hours in the day, <laughs> if we're talking, it doesn't add up. Maths is not mathing. <laughs> the maths is not mathing. But this is barakah. This is barakah. That the Quran gave me a capacity that honestly, Khadija, I feel like if it wasn't for the Quran, that wouldn't have been possible. Like that whole year, I look back at it and I think that wasn't even human. <laughs> like it wasn't even human to function in that way. But alhamdulillah, shukrillah, it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed it to be so, so I can see the evidence of this point that you're making. That Quran brings barakah. It brings an unmatched barakah. And I'm feeling it now, now that I don't have those kind of commitments. And my, my consistency, if you will, with the Quran is not as strong. Because you see, when you're busy, the, and this is kind of the way that I've tried to make sense of it, is when you're busy... You know that I literally just have this one hour. If I don't do Quran in this one hour, I won't have time for the rest of the day. So you hold on to it for dear life. 
But now I have more hours in the day. <laughs> like this is something that I'm, yeah, none of us are perfect. Something that I want to work on, on prioritizing the Quran. That before I do anything, you know, like just to make sure that I have my wirid, my my specific portion, my daily portion from the beginning of the day. That's something that I, I, yeah, and it's a level I want to get to. But it was much easier when I was busier. Subhanallah. It's just crazy, 100%. right? But it's a barakah factor. 100%. I think one thing that, it's looking back at the lives of scholars as well and it's um, a lot of them say that and, and a lot of them um, show to us that actually it's the busiest of people who actually are the most accomplished um, subhanallah and we see that in all like if you look at the imams if you look at you know the, the four imams if you look at their lives and I think subhanallah like just studying their lives and their biographies just really opens your eyes to wow I really can't hold on to a page a day or I can't hold on to a few ayahs a day or whatever you've set for yourself you mentioned the word wird. What is wird, and mm-hmm. how did you go about um, setting up a wird, and how did that change? Because obviously, sometimes people get busy, and so- sometimes people get caught up with life. And so, how would you kind of um, tell people, or would you advise, sorry, people to kind of navigate that? Mm-hmm. One thing I would say before I answer the specific question of wird is when it comes to Quran advice, I feel like it's so. Um, it's not a one size fits all at all, subhanAllah. And not just not just not it being a one size fits all, but even you and yourself, you have different seasons in your life. So maybe something worked for you at some point, but it won't work for you in you know, later on down the line. Or even Khadija, I found with certain surah or certain ayat or certain pages, one method works yeah. and in another portion, a different method yeah, works. Like subhanAllah, my experience with the Quran has been that. I've, I've, it took me a long time to get to this point, but where I've gotten okay with being, I've gotten okay with realizing that not all, not everyone's advice is going to work for me. My own advice won't even work for me. It depends on what's happening in my life. It depends on the portion that I'm trying to cover. It depends on so many different factors. So when it comes to Quranic advice or people give you advice about the journey of the Quran, a person needs to take it and think about whether it would fit with them or not. Try and an error. You know, like some people, I feel like they're it can be a bit off-putting because they're giving a certain advice and you're like I've tried this but it's not working for me like one very common piece of advice is to do your Quran after Fajr if I can stay awake (laughs) if I can stay awake to just do my adhkar it will be accomplished (laughs) like to sit there and to do Quran I struggle a lot and I tried for so long to do it and then I just realized Sarah this doesn't work for you try something else you know I do my Quran in the evening most of the time that's fine that worked for me, but for so long I was feeling guilty. That why is it that I can't I can't start my day with Quran? Why is it that I can't read Quran right after Fajr? You know, like why like I would feel bad about it and I'll beat myself up about it. But then like and this happened at the end of my journey, like of my first khatma, where I just realized that it's you and your mushaf. You and your mushaf, you guys figure it out. <laughs> like yeah. you guys figure out what works for you, you know? So in terms of a weird my weird has been yeah, a weird um as you mentioned, Khadija, it's like a daily bare minimum of uh, amount of Quran that you read on a daily basis. Obviously, the more Quran you memorize, the yani, the more your widow differs, right? Whenever I, I speak to the community and about their engagement with the Quran, obviously you're speaking to an audience that have loads of different levels and backgrounds and everything. So I always recommend have layers in your engagement with the Quran so you have a bare minimum that no matter what I'm not going to let this go yeah. right and then that bare minimum can look different in different ways as well so for example reading while looking yeah. right or reading for, like say for example your ideal scenario is 10 pages without looking 
this is just a random example it could be different yeah. for everyone so and then you tell yourself that at least at least i'm gonna if i can't do it like that like i'm sitting down and i have a blocked amount of time where i can do my 10 pages then i'll do it on my commute just while looking right or if i even can't do that for whatever reason then i'll at least listen to the 10 pages so you have like layers within your weird so that you don't drop it and you don't lose it and you don't leave it so a weird is basically i would describe it as like an anchor like it's an anchor that keeps your head above the water and it also keeps your relationship with the Quran intact. But it doesn't have to be anything crazy, yeah. you know, like a little goes a long way with the Quran because yeah. it's Mubarak, Kitab Mubarak, right? Yeah. It's a blessed book. So a little, any engagement with the Quran, a person might, that example I just gave Khadija, someone would be like, what? Listening, that doesn't count. Yeah. Not realizing that the edge of, of listening is like the edge of Qira'ah. Like it's very, it's very powerful. Listening, powerful. listening yeah. to the Quran is something that is very. Uh, um, it, it brings about so much reward, especially yeah. done when done with like you know, focus and, and appreciation. Yeah, Exactly, which we all in need for, in need yeah. of, right? True. So listening to the Quran is a very powerful thing, um, and it's an act of worship. So when it comes to wird, it's something that every single person needs, but a person shouldn't make it difficult for themselves. Because even that bare minimum, that anchor that they so badly need, they they will make it. If they make it difficult for themselves, it will be it won't be within reach anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I have another question about so wird. It's something kind of you're holding yourself accountable. What else can help with accountability? And do you feel that having a teacher is necessary? Would you recommend it? And Kind of some person who's starting out, um, what advice would you kind of give them surrounding that? Yes, have <coughs> one. I feel like a teacher is very important. <laughs> it's very, very important. If you're someone like me who doesn't know how to be disciplined, having a teacher will make all the difference. You know, um, I was speaking to our teacher, Sheikh Ayad, and he, subhanAllah, the interesting thing, I think I mentioned this to you, Khadija, about my relationship with him is that I first met him when I first started my journey with the Quran, like memorization. And this was when I was in sixth form. And then I recently restarted lessons with him. So we're talking like almost a decade, eight, seven, eight years later. And then I told him, Sheikh, I've reached this point. And he said, what change? I said, Sheikh, I got a teacher to read with me every day. <laughs> and he was like, that's all you needed. Sure, He's like, you yeah. needed consistency. It wasn't a matter of improving, like, you know, uh, fluency or tajweed. Not that, obviously, everyone has room for improvement. But his point was, is that it wasn't skill-based. It was just a matter of having that accountability. Because ultimately, you need consistency when you're trying to memorize the Quran. And if that's something that you can't have yourself, which I could not have myself, then having a teacher makes all the difference. So when I decided to take my health seriously three years ago, I actually got a teacher that I would read to five days a week. So every single day, basically, except the weekend. And that was a game changer. I only made progress after I made that step. Yeah. Or after Allah facilitate, facilitated that step for me. And then as I'm nearing the end, now I have two teachers. <laughs> so the teacher I read to, the same one that I read to daily, and then a teacher, Sheikh Ayad, who I read to weekly. Because I just need that. I need that kind of, you know, they call it in psychology, they call it scaffolding. Yeah. Like someone to kind of hold you up, you know? And I need, I just really needed that. And so it make, I think a teacher will make all the difference if you're not someone who's able to have that consistency by yourself. 100%. And I think, to be honest with you, from my experience of speaking to other people as well, and my own experiences, I 100% agree. I think a teacher is essential. And then, but you could all give yourselves a trial. See yeah. yourself without <laughs> a teacher, then see yourself with a teacher. Honestly, you'll notice a massive difference. Yeah, but really good advice, Sarah. 
Um, another question I had for you was points when you felt a bit low in your Quran journey. I'm talking mm. about points when um, you felt demotivated. I mean, it is a, like you said, it's it's such a big journey, um, and there is a lot to memorize, and there's a lot of muraja, there's a lot of revision. How, yeah. So how how would you cope at those times and What were those times, and do you think certain things triggered it? Triggered it, or yeah, yeah. Subhanallah, this this is a big question. Like, there's multiple multiple things that comes to mind when I think of this. Um, of course, of course, there were times in my journey with the Quran where I struggled. Right, it still happens. <laughs> like, I still struggle. Right, like of course, like memorizing the Quran, like we said earlier, it's not an easy thing. It's not an easy step to make. Um, but subhanAllah If I'm trying to think Pinpoint like times Where I just felt like I couldn't progress It was where Like I was going through Difficulty So just reading to my teacher Like it would be so hard To get through a page Without like getting emotional For example Because I was in such a bad Like place um, And it happens right It happens to us um, But subhanAllah Khadija I look at those times So fondly So funny because you only build a sohba, you only build a companionship with someone when they see you in your most vulnerable moments. So the fact that at that time where I was going through that difficulty, the Quran was probably the only constant. It transformed my relationship with the Book of Allah. 100%. You know, so even though I felt very low, and it was a struggle and a real struggle to progress in my hifth, just the fact that there was uh, I was holding on even by a thread. It was a game changer for me. It was a game changer because now when I look at the Quran, I see a friend. Yeah. I see, I see um, speech that will comfort me. Yeah. You know, because I've I've experienced it, tried yeah. and tested. You know, so that's just in terms of life. You know, so and that had a ripple effect on my relationship with the Quran in terms of yani just struggling to progress. Um, but in terms of the actual process of memorization, the, yes, there have been times where I really struggled. Um, and one thing that was very freeing, like whenever I felt like I would struggle, is I stopped comparing myself to other people and I took ownership of my relationship with the Quran. Let me explain what I mean by that. So many, like especially, and when I look back, remember how I said earlier that I never actually went to like a Quran school as a child, like yeah. on a consistent basis. Like I don't see that as a naqs. Like I don't see that as something that took away from me. The opposite is true, because I feel like in those kind of cultures and environment, com competition is huge. It's it's very much about competition, right? And that could be healthy to some extent, especially when it comes to kids motivating them and that kind of thing. But then your relationship with with the Quran gets tainted when you make it about competition. There's a potential. Obviously, I don't want to paint all competitions with one brush. I enjoy watching them. I think they're very beneficial. They're very motivating. But what I mean is that if your relationship with the Quran or your journey with the Quran is through the lens of compar comparing yourself with other people and then feeling down as a result of it, not motivated, feeling down as a result of it, then what you've done is you've let go of ownership of your relationship with the Quran. You've let other people dictate your relationship with the Quran. And It does take some confidence to do this, but sometimes people are very overly critical when it comes to you and your relationship with the Quran. So for example, with, with your recitation, like picking out every single little detail, and that can be very demotivating, right? Like, I remember reading to a teacher not too long ago, actually, and she, is, she was based out in Saudi. She's not my, my teacher, she's just someone I ended up reading to that day. 
And then she's like, I can hear your British accent in your recitation. And I was just like, what does that even mean? <laughs> like, what does that even mean? Like, some comments, you just take them and throw them away. Because yeah. there's, there's no there's no there. There's no benefit. Like, like, that doesn't mean anything. If I made a mistake, correct me. If I didn't make a mistake, then there's no point in saying things like that, right? And obviously, yeah. I know she intended well. But I, could, I didn't know what to do with that comment, you know? And so sometimes that happens. That in your journey with the Qur'an people and we must give them the benefit of the doubt and believe that they don't do it intentionally but they can very plainly put you off you know and make you feel like you're inadequate make you feel like you don't have a right to have a relationship with the quran make you feel like the quran is not for people like you anytime you have any experience like that or feeling like that dismiss it immediately and I'm saying this because it came from experience. Like I decided that I want to memorize the Quran. That's why I'm that's why I'm memorizing the Quran. Whether my relationship with the Quran or my commitment to the Quran conforms to what your version of it is or not, I don't care. And I know that sounds so blunt, but I feel like it, personally in my journey, I felt like I had to get to that point where I can just block out the noise and make this about me. And the book of Allah for Allah. You know? So whenever... And this is why, Khadija, I'm so passionate about this. You know, like I'm so passionate about this. Whenever I have the opportunity to talk to people about the Quran, about the book of Allah, I usually start the conversation here. That this is for you. The relationship with the Quran is for you. So take it with both hands. Take it with both hands, right? Um, yeah, sorry. I'm passionate. That's why I like, <laughs> like no, getting up. <laughs> I understand. No, fully. 100%. And I think when you immerse yourself in the field enough, like to people maybe starting out on their journey, this doesn't sound familiar to them. But I 100% think so. This is a vast world. There are loads of people in this. But not everyone who is in this world of the Quran is necessarily uh, going to impart the best advice on you or going to be the best influence. And it's so true. If you're sincere, then leave it. It's between you and Allah. That's it. Um, I, I 100% see that. Um, I also want to ask a little bit about um, you being on the brink, inshallah, of memorizing the Ibn Allah, very, very close. Um, how are you feeling? And I want to ask also how being a hafidah, inshallah, going to be a hafidah, how do you feel right now, just, just looking onto that future, um, how do you feel that that might change the way that people perceive you? And also how do you feel that the responsibility might change. Mm-hmm. Um, just being a person who is a hafidah, a memorizer of the Book of Allah. Yeah, it's a huge responsibility. You know, like the game changes. <laughs> the game changes for yourself on a personal level and your relationship with the Quran, your commitment with the Quran, and also how people view you as well. Um, you know, Subhanallah Khadija. One of the first conversations, the first conversation we ever had, it was about Ahlul Quran, people of the Quran, and how a person needs to sense you're a person of the Quran or you're a hafidah of the Quran. Just through a conversation with you. You didn't mention the Quran. You didn't say anything about the Quran. Just through your interaction with them, the warmth that you radiate, the way that they, you make them feel, the prophetic approach that you have to that relationship, they need to feel it from a mile away. And I believe this. You know, I believe that the Quran needs to show on you. You know, like I don't want to ever need to tell someone I'm a hafidah, inshallah. Yeah. Inshallah. <laughs> like I don't want need to any I don't need to I, I hope I never have to tell anyone that. I hope that they'll just feel that. They'll just sense it in their heart, yeah. you know? Um so um being a person of the Quran, like this is very, very important, something that I aspire towards and I that's what I want to happen. Like I want the Quran 
as heavy as it is to have in your chest, I want it to show. To speak for you. I want it to speak so, for me. True. Exactly. Um, and then uh, also the other part of your question. Um, so you mentioned about, yes, about how I feel. You know, it's crazy, Khadija, because I actually feel very sad. Like whenever I count the pages or I look at how much I have left, it's a feeling I didn't expect. I didn't expect to feel sadness, but I actually feel sadness. Sadness because it's like the end of a very... Um, it's like you know what I said earlier about the excitement and the like amazement you feel with the Quran and like the you know just a new fresh page that you've never seen but you never memorized before like I'm never gonna have that feeling ever again of a new fresh page you know like now the Quran is all familiar and even though that's a beautiful thing that's like a different stage it's a beautiful thing that the whole Quran is familiar to you but it's just that kind of there's like an innocence there of like next page now like you know like okay yeah, yeah I can tick this off I can go now it's all about f- living up to it you know so it's the it's not as fun it's not as fun and and I'm obviously I'm not saying this in a disrespectful way at all but like when you're memorizing it's all fresh it's all new it's all exciting it's like oh first khatma right but now second third fourth it's like you must do it like you don't actually have a choice now. <laughs> if if I feel like I don't want to do my widow that day, I don't have a choice, right? If I want to uh, assume this title or assume this position as hafiz al kitabillah, then it's something that you kind of have to live up to. And this puts people off. It puts people off from 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 memorizing the Quran. But I would say to that person that isn't it better that you're held at that standard in the sight of Allah and you spend every single day of your life trying your best to live up to it than never even pursuing that to begin with. Yeah. You know, so it's 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 predominantly sadness because I just I'm sad that that phase is ending, but it's also like anticipation and excitement for what can happen to my relationship with the Book of Allah, yeah. and how inshallah, inshallah, I can kind of go to the next level now. Yeah, like inshallah. now, there's scope for me to get even better and even more inshallah. committed to the Book of Allah. Inshallah, that's my hope. Inshallah. No, one hundred percent. And on your point, um, the Quran is described by the scholars as being Aziz. Mm. It's honorable. Like, so you can't expect that you're going to memorize it and khalas. Like, that's it. I'm out. Mm. No, Quran is not going to seek you. You have to seek it. And you, Subhanallah, you have to keep. Like you said, uh, you're on the brink of memorizing and khalas. You still feel that no, I. Ha- it gets harder now. It's it's a new challenge. It's constantly a new challenge, subhanAllah. And you mentioned before, so the feelings of kind of excitement, any excitement in there? I mean, of course, there's excitement. What about your parents? I want to know about your parents. What about your parents? You said, you mentioned earlier that you would be the first in your immediate family, inshallah. How do you think that that would be make an impact on your parents? I think my parents will say, "Khalas, do what you want." <laughs> like you made us happy. You made us happy. I think my parents would be so, so, so happy. My parents actually, like I said in that when I mentioned them earlier, they inspire me so much, Khadija. Like my parents, my dad's a doctor, like you, and he, um, he literally had. Remember what I said about that time frame, just in the morning, right? So after Fajr, like he just, or sometimes he even has to wake up like beforehand so that he can get his hefl in, and just hearing him and seeing him do that consistently. My dad's in his 60s, by the way, right? Just seeing him do that consistently, it puts me to shame. (laughs) It puts me to shame. But it's beautiful to see that kind of raghba and that love for the Quran. And going back to what we were saying about people of the Quran, like obviously this is just a reflective definition that I'm giving. It's not like a, a scholarly definition or whatever, but just upon reflection, I really believe that 
people of the Quran, it's not limited to those who memorize the Quran or who have memorized the Quran its entirety. Like my mother is also a Quran teacher, even though she hasn't completed her memorization, she's definitely a lover of the Quran. She's someone who spends hours on end teaching the Quran and being with also like women who are slightly older who didn't really get that opportunity when they were younger for someone to sit with them and read with them. So she does that on like very often, multiple times a week. Um, so my parents, I think they'll be very happy, and seeing their happiness is my happiness, yeah. right? Because obviously, it's like inshallah, it's all about akhirah suid, <laughs> inshallah. All right, Sarah. Um, I know that you're you've obviously got a background in psychology, in mental health. Uh, my question's kind of big, but it's mental health and Quran. Tell me more about that. Yes. Um, so you didn't. You don't need to say more. Like, <laughs> like it's understood. Yeah. The Quran, as you know, Khadija, better than me, that is described as a shifa. You know, the Quran is described in the, as a shifa, and like I, I share with people in my mental health workshops, that Islam as a whole and the Islamic perspective, the Islamic guidance, the prophetic perspective, the pro- prophetic guidance. There's something in there to allow us all to live more fulfilling lives. Right. So if a person and and I it's very important that I clarify this, if a person's struggling with mental health, we're not just dismissing them with the Quran. We're not dismissing them with dua, right? And that that's done. People do that, right? Like just make dua or you're not praying enough or whatever. And this is dismissing. This is like this is wrong. This is weaponizing the religion, right? That someone's actually suffering and you're giving them a remedy that's not complete. And this isn't to say that the Quran or the Islam is incomplete. Of course we're not saying that. But if someone is like dealing with, uh, you know, uh, like you're a doctor, you know, right? If someone's dealing with something in particular and you give them um, not enough dosage of a certain medicine, right? Or something along those lines. You give them something that's not the complete picture, yeah? I mean, they need more, right? And in order for someone to truly appreciate the depth and the shifa and the beauty of the Quran and Islam, they need to be okay. They need to be healthy. They need to be in a position where they can properly receive it. That's why, like, even in Islam, like... Um, like fiqh 101 like for someone to be accountable they need to be fully in their senses right so they need to uh, be pubescent they need to be fully in their senses this is like basic right so it's not fair to impose um the quran as kind of like the solution to someone who is suffering with depression for example the quran is part of the solution Right, the Quran is part of the solution. So the Quran is a shifa. We believe this. The profundity of the Quran is there. We believe this. The Quran has the power to heal in the most profound and beautiful ways. Absolutely. But if someone needs clinical help, right, then give them that. Give them that and give them the Quran. Give them the medicine and give them the Quran. Right. So the Quran is very powerful in that sense. Where when it comes to mental health, it's something that can transform a person's mental health. Right, but in the same breath, we're not saying that a person should just go to a room and read the Quran. Right, yeah. that a person also needs all the other things that they need to become better and to be complete as a person. But the potential of the Quran, in terms of shifa, in terms of helping someone heal, is profound. Yeah. It's profound. Um, in fact, Khadija, this is like exclusive, like <laughs> sharing out on the podcast. But something that I'm working on is, alhamdulillah, Allah's honored us to teach tafsir. But what I wanted to do is to teach tafsir with a counseling focus. 
So the same tools that are used in counseling, right? The same tools that a therapist would use. We like my intention is to basically pick them from the Quran yeah. because the Quran is meant to address us, right? Human beings who go through all their varying different situations and circumstances, health and lack of health and um, both physical, mental, everything. So with that, with that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us the Quran, yeah. knowing that we will go through different things in our life, right? So it takes kind of like a focused eye to be able to identify that. Yeah. That, okay, Allah says this about grief, for example. Allah says this about hardship. Allah says this about difficulty. This is actually used in modern day therapy and psychology, you know? Yeah. And who knows the human being better than the one who created them? So the potential of the Quran for Shifa mental health or otherwise is so huge but you need a certain type of eye to be able to identify those things because like we and this is like a common kind of conversation that people have when it comes to mental health in islam where it's like you have people who are very well versed in the religion but they lack their knowledge in mental health or vice versa they're very well versed in mental health but they lack their knowledge of the religion and i worked a little bit in the muslim mental health scene and what I found is that even though these are Muslim therapists or Muslim psychologists or Muslim psychotherapists or whatever it is, that doesn't mean that they understand certain things in the religion. Yeah. Does that make sense? So, for example, like someone would say that I'm sitting with a Muslim therapist and even though that's better, it's a better scenario because this person understands, this person can also say things that are not correct, yeah. you know. So in order for there to kind of be like a complete picture, right, then a person needs both. Yeah. They need both an understanding of the religion in a, in the formal sense of the word and both an understanding of psychology in a formal sense of the word. And alhamdulillah, like Islamic psychology is an emerging field. It's yeah. something that is recently is emerging. There are people who, like I said, are well-versed in both who are taking this field by the reins and really like, you know, um, writing a lot about it, offering, um, you know, uh, Islamic therapy and all of this. So the field is growing. But the potential of the Quran in this field is... Honestly, I feel like there's so much there. There's so much there. Yeah. Yep. So, Sara, what would you say are some of the most reassuring verses? Um, and then separate to that, um, if you could share, like, obviously you work in the mental health space and you deal with sort of other people's mental health. Um, and like you said, you're kind of starting an initiative, trying to bring mental health and the Quran sort of together. Mm-hmm. Um, before talking about other people, um, on yourself, how have you noticed the Quran um, has affected your own personal mental health? And I know you kind of touched on it before, yeah. but we can kind of link that in perhaps with some of the verses that you found most reassuring. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, the Quran is reassurance, Khadija. Like literally, the Quran in a nutshell is reassurance, you know? Yeah. Like there are things, especially the ayat where, like for example, you have... The reason that I'm giving like general is because this happens a lot in the Quran Where it's like a prophet who's responding to the rejection of their people In different places For example, right? Or uh, um, Or Surah Hud Um uh, Right? Like these different places where the prophets are responding to rejection and the reason that I'm fixating on rejection is because in psychology we learn that rejection is one of the most painful experiences a human can have to the extent that the neurons are activated in the brain when someone experiences rejection are the same as physical pain. 
So if you slapped me, please don't. But if you slapped me, right, that's going to hurt. And then yeah. certain, and you know this better than I do, certain certain neurons, like pain activators, whatever you call them, right? This is non-scientific language, <laughs> but it's going to activate, right? And it's, yeah. if I experience rejection, the same, the same neurons are activated. So rejection is a very difficult thing to experience. And so the way that the prophets responded to it, and they responded to it with iman and with fearlessness and with courage. That's so reassuring. That's so reassuring. So those kind of ayat, I think they've helped me a lot in life. And they're reassuring in general. Like to anyone who's experiencing that in particular. Because rejection could take many forms, right? So anyone who's... It can even be within your own family. It can be because of external circumstances or situations or whatever, right? But that's one thing that I think these ayat are so powerful. And that's why they're often repeated in the Quran. Prophets' interactions with their people. Right, those who rejected, those who dismissed, those because like a person's difficulties in life, people are often a source of them, right? Like they're the source of the problems, like the yeah. interactions that you have with others, 100%. the situations that you deal with other people. So the it's like twofold the reassurance in the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa taala is telling the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam these stories to reassure him, right? Sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and then also you have like. So it's through the story, and then it's Allah directly reassuring the Prophet So these different, like these, the, I'm I'm putting them as a theme and not giving specific ayat because it happens so often in the Quran, yeah. right? And in terms of like a specific verse, I can think of for myself, like at this stage in my life where I'm going through like major transitions, there's one ayah or part of an ayah um, in Surah Al-Qasas where Allah is talking to Musa السلام, and he says Ya Musa أقبل ولا تخف إنك من الآمنين that O oh, Musa come forward and don't don't be afraid because you're safe yeah. and I just think to myself like imagine Allah saying that to you yeah. and when you're reciting the Quran it's as if Allah is saying yeah. it to you right so obviously like the verses that kind of reassure me the most or stick out to me the most they change you know they've changed based on whatever's happening in my personal life but at this stage that ayah I feel like it's as if Allah is addressing me directly yeah you know um, but yeah the Quran as a whole is reassurance yeah yeah and if you had to pick, you mentioned stories of the prophets. Which one would you pick? As, <laughs> as like the most, Subhanallah, where am I supposed to? Which one am I supposed to pick? You know, like there's so, like you mentioned, different seasons of your life. Yeah, you have different sort of favorites. You can mention one of them. Okay, of them. okay, okay. So this one, uh, Subhanallah, this is probably going to lead us into another conversation. But you know, in Surah Yusuf, where. Um, you know, everyone like Surah Yusuf is a beautiful surah, right? It's so beautiful, and yeah. that's actually the one that I, the surah I wanted to use for the Quranic counseling. But Surah Yusuf, like people pick out certain ayat that really stick out, right? So, for example, Inna ma ashku bathi wa Allah, and for example, Fatir al Samawati wa Ard Antawli fi Dunya wa Akhirah. Like these are beautiful ayat, right? Um, and many of them have resonated with me at certain points in life. But one in particular that people gloss over. Here's the part at the beginning of the surah where it says, وَشَرَوْهُ بِثَمَنٍ بَخْسْ دَرَاهِمَ مَعْدُودًا That they purchased Yusuf alayhi salam. Yusuf, Nabiullah, like Prophet yeah. of Allah. They purchased him with a few coins. Like like a cheap price, a yeah. few coins, right? They didn't think anything of him, right? And there were situations in my life where, especially in this path, you know, as a woman wanting to take this path, of serving the community, of pursuing scholarship. It's something that people, yani, they kind of feel like it's not your place. 
And I got this sentiment a lot, a lot, especially when I was starting out because I was very young. So I got this sentiment a lot where it's just kind of like, yeah, like, you know, you're you're getting ahead of yourself, you know, you're getting ahead of yourself and they don't think, they don't give you the time of day, you know, they don't think anything of you. But who knows, according to Allah or in the sight of Allah, you can be very noble and very honoured. But not to the people. But not to the people. And in that moment, Yusuf was literally a slave, about to be sold into slavery, thrown in a well by his brothers, right? Totally irrelevant as a person to the people around. But عند Allah, like to Allah, he was... The a prophet, <laughs> and he was honored in his lifetime. Yeah, and that's Surah so Yusuf, man. Like if we start on Surah Yusuf, we're not gonna start. Like yeah. in his lifetime, like at the end of the surah, right? His dream literally unfolded in front of his eyes, right? So so much, so much to take from there. But that ayah, like that ayah is like every time I read it, I'm just like, man, you know, like when it comes to worth, seek it from Allah. Subhanallah. That is a beautiful answer, Sara. 100%. Yeah. I want to ask you a little bit more about something you've mentioned and our, like, genuine interest. Um, You mentioned sort of the work that you do, which we want to get onto, and um, also being a woman in, in that in that field, in that space. So, first of all, I think to open um, this kind of, uh, this area... Tell me a bit more about the work that you do and when you started doing it and kind of your role and how it developed um, within communities. Yeah, so <clears throat> um, so I kind of formally started doing this um, like very early on. So in terms of like just how like when I started practicing, I don't like using these words, but just for like easy reference, yeah. when I started to practice, it was like when I was around 14 years old. And one of the things that I just had so much love for and I really wanted to do was twofold. So it was um, learning more. So every single weekend I'd be in East London. I live in South London, nothing happens there. <laughs> so I'll be in East London and I'll go to all these that, lectures. That is a meme. <laughs> So I go to all these lectures and I'll like, you know, I'll find out which sheikh is coming and like as much as I can benefit. Like I had that kind of um, that initial excitement and zeal like we spoke about of just seeking as much knowledge as possible. But there was also a second thing that was happening naturally. And that was just my love for sharing the knowledge and my love for serving in the community and volunteering. So I'd volunteer at the masjid as well. And like I taught kids and like it kind of happened simultaneously, like my love for studying and my love for serving. So I kind of realized early on, and may Allah bless my teachers at that time who encouraged me in this direction, that this was what I want to do for the rest of my life. You know, like this was the line of work I wanted to go into. So I did want to study the deen, but I had the intention from the get-go to serve as well. And even though people look at that as a faulty intention, and like a person should only study for themselves and all of that, there's nobility in that without a shadow of a doubt. But for a person from the get-go to have an intention that goes beyond themselves opposite is true. That's a good thing. You know, that's a good thing that if someone decides that I don't, I want to learn and I want to build myself as a person, but I also want to have an impact. I also want to build a community around me. You know, like I also want to change the world. And that was the type of things that I would say at that time. And um, that, like I said, when you sit down with someone who you think is going to take you there and you tell them all these big dreams and whatever, because I was so young, it was very easy to dismiss that she doesn't know what she's talking about. Like, like who, who did she think she is? Like that kind of thing. Like, even if someone didn't say that to me explicitly, it was just kind of the, the vibe I got. And so... <clears throat> 
Yeah, so I mean, in terms of when it started, it started early on. And it's something that I knew, and like I just knew in my heart of hearts, it's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And even though those initial years of trying to find the right mentorship, the right opportunities, right, were very difficult, they were very difficult, I knew that I couldn't let this go. Like, and I just had that, that azima from that time, like that kind of determination that I don't care. Like, if you're telling me to let this go, you're telling me to let go a part of me. You know, like, if that's where my skill set lies, yeah. if I'm someone who, alhamdulillah, I can speak publicly, I can mix well with people, then I should use this visa Utilize it, yeah. Right? I should use this in the path of Allah, right? Yeah. But I also recognize and I also understand that I'm young. I'm, I don't know much. I need experience. I need to learn more. I need to be mentored. So mentor me. Yeah. And Khadija, this conversation happened with multiple people. Just no, 100%. Person. I think I experienced this when thinking of putting a podcast like this together. There is this idea and doubts that I had within myself and doubts that were also vocalized to me mm-hmm. that oh, you're putting yourself out there or you're putting someone else out there, right? You're inviting people because I don't want, want to hear from other people. And it's kind of like, it kind of feels like it's touching on your sincerity, mm-hmm. which is obviously given weight, but it's also... It makes you feel like, oh, I'm better just staying at home and not sharing anything and not... But subhanAllah, there is so much khair. And I think it's the modern day version of like our potential to scale our da'wah and our impact is so much bigger than ever before. Mm-hmm. Social media with everything. So I really hear that. And I also want to ask you a little bit about specifically being a woman in this kind of space. Do you feel that you were doubted more? I kind of think I know the answer. And... Obviously, there are certain um, perhaps feelings people might have towards women putting themselves out there in Islam, even in Islamic spaces, uh, because women shouldn't appear as public or women shouldn't be speaking out in public or other opinions that people might have. And what would you sort of say? Yeah, what what would you say to that? And also, um, do, do you feel do you feel that sentiment that it was just a bit heavier because you are a female? Mm-hmm. I, I definitely think that obviously the w- our male counterparts definitely have it easier. <laughs> they definitely have it easier. If, for example, and this has happened to me many times, many times, there was a, a man, a brother, right, who had not studied as much as I have, right, who has not had the experience that I have, who does not have the skill set that I have, just by virtue of the fact that he's male, he will get priority. Natural. He yeah. will get priority. And the thing is, and the good thing is, is that we don't care. We don't care in the sense that it's not going to influence our work, right? If you don't give me credibility, that doesn't change my himma. That doesn't change how motivated I am because I'm not doing it for your credibility, right? And so it goes back to what I was saying earlier about taking ownership of your relationship with the Quran. Take ownership of your relationship with Allah. Take ownership of your legacy that you want to leave in this dunya. You know, and work so hard on having that kind of sincerity and that truthfulness in that. And Allah will bring you the opportunities in a way that would amaze you, you know. So that's a reality. But the reason I'm saying that we're indifferent to it is because in this line of work of doing da'wah, of spreading, you know, spreading knowledge, working in the community, success is not in proportion to visibility, 
Meaning, if no one ever knew who we were, Khadija, this podcast is still, inshallah, written in our good deeds and mission accomplished. 100%. If no one watched it, alhamdulillah. Like, at least we had this nice conversation. It doesn't make a difference, right? 100%. So, even though in terms of visibility and opportunities, yes, the brothers, they have better chance, especially somewhere in, like the UK. The brothers have a better chance. But I've, and this came after, yani, time for me to come to this conclusion, I've gotten to a point where I'm indifferent. They have all the opportunities in the world. As long as I'm able to serve until my very last breath and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts it from me and it's a means of elevation in my akhirah, whether I'm seen or unseen, indifferent, don't care. And to be frank, Khadija, even guys should have that mentality as well. That's a universal gender-neutral mentality. That we do work of the deen for the sake of Allah. No matter what, no matter what. Whether it's online, whether it's in the community, no matter what. For me, Khadija, coming here, this was just an additional thing that I've outside of all the other work that I'm doing as well. It's just another opportunity to serve the deen, right? And this could have been in the form of a written interview. That doesn't change the fact that it was something that we did to serve the deen. Yeah. You know what I mean? So the way, the form that it takes is based on the person, right? Whatever they, because you know what you were saying earlier about people saying that a woman shouldn't be out there. If you're coming to me with ala ilm, like you're coming to me and you actually have researched this topic and it's something that you genuinely are concerned about and you feel like the harms completely outweigh the benefits, I'll listen to you. You know, put your case on the table, I'll listen to you. But if this is something that is khayr, you know, and something that is worship Allah, and something that will benefit people, then what's the what's the harm? You know, what's the harm? If we can truly say that the harms outweigh the benefits, then we wouldn't be sitting here. You know, you wouldn't be doing this. Yeah. You know, and I want to commend you. I actually want to commend you because it's a brave step to take. Because yes. as as a woman, going back to your question, as a woman, you are much more open to scrutiny and criticism. In the Muslim world, sadly. In the Muslim world. Yeah. I guarantee you, on this video, there'll be comments. <laughs> there'll be comments of things that are so, yani, anyway. But my point is, is that this is expected. We come into this expecting this. It's a burden we're willing to carry Inshallah. on this path, you know. And alhamdulillah, like the, the people that came before us suffered much more than we do. So we're happy to have some sort of incon- inconvenience, some people criticizing here and there. We're happy. We'll take it. It's nothing. It's nothing. It's we just nothing. pray for Allah's acceptance. Inshallah. That was beautiful again. So, um, Sarah, in terms of um, service being of different forms, um, what kind of work have you been up to um, within the community or just um, in, in sort of any scale? Um, so, alhamdulillah, as you mentioned in the introduction, like I have two like babies that I've been working on. <laughs> like Conscious is much older than Rawasi. Rawasi only started a few months ago. But with Conscious, it's in its eighth year now, alhamdulillah. And um, we started it um, uh, we started it in 2016. So uh, yeah, since eighth year. And basically with um, Conscious, it was it's a it was it started off as a youth group. So it was literally just a matter of, okay, I've started practicing, I've got like, you know, I'm studying and I want to share it as well. But in terms of a platform, like some somewhere like a community to serve, people to sit with, people to teach, that kind of didn't exist, right? And because I was so young, again, that whole dismissal thing. So even though I did teach kids before that, and that was fine, I enjoyed it a lot, actually. It was like it was something that I really loved doing. I just kind of wanted a space that did what I believe a community space should do. So I'll give you an example. When I used to work in the masjid back when I was a teenager, 
I used to say to the the other members of staff that you know these kids they need some sort of recreation like for them to be sitting here for hours on end like reading reading Quran we we all know they're not reading Quran right like, they're just messing about like why do you think the bathroom is full like you know, like for us like the kids need some sort of recreation and I remember subhanallah Khadija I remember this comment like it was yesterday because it really hurt me it hurt me because I felt dismissed I remember one of the sisters she wasn't that like like she was like in her late 20 early early 30 something like that and she basically was like parents don't send their kids to the masjid to play and even though i understand like what she was saying and i understand like her point what's the priority is a priority for the kids to come to the masjid and feel like it was the most pleasant experience ever and they never want to leave the masjid anyone they're so excited to come every single week or is a priority for the parents to just get their money's worth yeah. You know, like for the kid to memorize X amount of surahs that they might probably just forget anyway because they're, they're doing it forcefully or un- unwillingly. And even though back then I was dismissed and I was seen as just like someone who doesn't know what they're talking about. Um, alhamdulillah, like s- soon after this, like a couple of years of experiencing that, I'm, like, I'm just going to do my own thing. <laughs> like I'm just going to do my own thing. And that's not ideal. You know, like the community should be a place where a young person's skills can be nurtured and improved and refined so that they can be assets to the community. Mm-hmm. Like I, I pray that no one's ever in my position where mm-hmm. they just feel like there's no one who's going to help me do this. There's no one who believes in this vision that I have. And so I'm just going to do my own thing. Right. So that's what ended up happening. But again, it's not the ideal course of action. It just felt like the only thing I could do in this situation. And I worked in like three different massages at this time, by the way. So it wasn't just like a bad apple. Yeah. Um, so Conscious started as a youth group because I was like 18, 19 at that time. And so um, it was kind of just like me and my friends, <laughs> like me and my friends. Um, and we got together. I, I was in college at that time, sixth form. And it was a very difficult environment, like faith-wise, right? Like I was the only one who was very visibly Muslim and it was a huge college, so many students. And so faith-wise, I needed an anchor for myself. Like I needed something to get together with other other girls, other people who were going through the same thing as that I was going through. And just like reconnecting with Allah and His Messenger at least once a week. So that, that was the intention. It was just like kind of just building the community around me. Um, so that happened and then um, what happened with Conscious is that it turned so it was something it was very humble effort it was just from my living room (laughs) like literally weekly classes from my living room and the way where we lived where we used to live there was a university hospital there university slash hospital so all the students and the staff used to come to my house so and then I realised that this was turning into like an intergenerational thing and it made me realise that the need was so much bigger than just like my group of friends so then conscious turned into kind of like a community group and Another thing, Khadija, that was a huge motivator to start in Conscious, it wasn't just for myself. Like, it wasn't just like, I need something, a platform. It wasn't that. It wasn't that. That was part of it. And I'm not going to shy away from saying that. But it was also because whenever I would go to these other kind of spaces and environments, they were Islamic, but they were not welcoming. And something wasn't adding up. (laughs) Like, something wasn't adding up. Like, I'm going to study oh, I'm going to go to this talk or this lecture, but no one's responding to my salam. So there was some some sort of disconnect that just wasn't working. So then I said to myself that, look, there's an ideal community, the prophetic community, and I'm going to do everything I possibly can to build it, even if it's just that, like my home and around my home, even if that's all I can do, right? So the intention behind Conscious became bigger. 
And that was to build a God conscious community. Like not just to build young people, not just to help young people find firmness in their faith and conviction, but it was like for everyone, like for everyone in the community. And so um, in terms of methodology, that's when I went and had my, well, prior to starting it, like that I actually had the training, right? So when I did my gap year, that's when I actually sat with my teachers and they gave me the kind of like guidance of how to do this, how to do it long term. They told me about the things that I can expect. And obviously I did my training in America, so it's a different context. So one thing that I realized very early on is that I can't just do a copy paste job. Yeah. There's certain things that my teachers and mentors share with me that won't work here. <laughs> you know, it won't work. And I learned that through trial and error and experience. So conscious grew very organically. Like it grew very, very organically, alhamdulillah. And it's something that we decided we wanted to do forever. Like it's a long-term project. Alhamdulillah, I've got a team with me now. And, you know, like we have more consistent services. We raised funds for the first time last year. So it's like, it's growing, alhamdulillah, but it's like our akhirah project, you know? So it's for the whole community, non-profit, everyone and anyone is welcome. Um, and just kind of to break the disunity that I saw so much of growing up. You know, there was so much disunity um, and we were, yani, our ethnicity, we were a minority among a minority. So because we're like the odd ones out, right? Like we don't, we don't mix with any group. We really felt it. We really felt it. So creating this community organization was for everyone else who feels it as well. You know, like everyone else, like especially reverts. This happens a lot. Someone who converted to Islam or younger people who are trying to get interested in their deen, but we f- they feel like everybody's teaching is much older and doesn't understand what they're going through. Like it was like these kind of pockets of people or professionals who yeah. are just looking for something quick and easy. Yeah. Like, you know, so it was like these pockets of people who have fallen through the cracks. It was like giving them something, you know. Yeah. So alhamdulillah, like conscious is ongoing and inshallah will continue to... Inshallah. And what kept you kind of going through it? Because I'm sure it started very small, like you said, in your living room. What sort of motivated... It's been eight years, mashallah. What kept you going? What motivated you? Um, especially because, like you said, it's it started off very sim- simple and very humble. Mm-hmm. My teachers. Like yeah. there is, it was just my teachers. Like may Allah bless them and raise them. They had a similar kind of vision. They had a similar kind of intention. And within their communities and their context, they pushed through for years. I'm talking fifteen, yeah. twenty years. Like they're just consistent. And I saw it with my eyes. Like it, it's one thing where you hear about it, and it's something else entirely when you witness it. Like one of my teachers, Shah Abdul Nasser, he used he literally Khadija. Like he he would be teaching us right. So Sunday to Thursday was our class week. So he would teach us the whole week. And that was back where where I studied, only had one teacher. He was the only teacher. Right? It was when it just started. And then on Thursday night, he would go to fly to a different state because he had a lecture or like a conference in a different state. He would arrive on Sunday morning, 8 a.m., 9 a.m., he's in class. Right? And when you see that, it's not a one-off. <laughs> it's not a one-off, right? Like I've been connected to him for the last 10 years. And it's not a one-off. Like we witnessed this throughout his life and seeing my teachers just tirelessly 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 serve the deen i feel like i don't have an option to give up and especially if i claim to be a continuation of their legacy and they claim they are a continuation of their teacher's legacy up to the prophet who was the epitome of him and commitment and consistency and never giving up and never stopping right so what keeps me going is the examples i have in front of me but these examples are not easy to find yes and then that goes back to our whole conversation about being female and trying to find those opportunities and everything. But Allah will give it to those who sincerely and, and really desire it. Yeah, no, definitely. And I want to ask you, speaking about 
sincerity um as you take on more and more influential roles and as you're navigating this and we're going to talk about Rawasi in a second um how do you maintain your sincerity how do you maintain kind of what's between you and Allah and and just keeping even the niyyah renewing the intention like how are you holding all that together that's the hardest thing yeah. and uh, to be frank I'm not <laughs> like it's a constant <laughs> battle you know it's a constant battle and something that a person needs to really work on and actively focus on before they do anything right that goes without saying but what I think is very important and I noticed this in my with my mentees that I recently was mentoring is that there's a lot of paranoia associated with sincerity sincerity or a fear of insincerity that leads to inaction is from shaitan. It's from shaitan. It's from shaitan. 100%. Right. And I remember having this conversation with my teacher, Sheikh Abdul Nasser, actually. I had this conversation with him one time. This was when I was in uni. And I said, Sheikh, you know, I'm teaching, but I'm not actively studying at the moment. And I can feel like a gap. You know, that I'm teaching, but I don't think I'm in the right place to teach. I don't think, you know, this feels like it's bigger than me. And then he told me something. He said, this is a statement of Fulayl ibn Iyad, who's one of the scholars of the past. He said, um, So both situations, when you do something or you leave something because of people, that's riya. Yeah. It's showing off. Because it's saying that my action is so amazing that if these people th- see it, they're going to think I'm like a big shot. 100%. Right? And... And doing things because of people is shirk, is associating partners with Allah. So what's the solution? The solution is remove people from the equation. Tamaman, completely. Remove people from the equation. That people have nothing to do with this. Everything, and it's hard. Yeah. It's hard because community work is people-based work. It's True. people-based work. So it's very hard to remove people completely from the equation. And that's why, and this is the conclusion of it, if I'm being very honest, you don't bank on this work. Yeah. You know? Like this work, public work, you don't bank on it. Like just have the assumption that it's not accepted and then you need to make up for, you need to make up for it in other areas. In secret as well, in I've secret. heard that, you know, what you, let, what you do in private be greater and better than sort of what you're doing in, in public. Yeah. And, and try and kind of, you know what I mean? Like try and build yourself there so that this is, becomes like embellishment. It's not, it's not your relationship with Allah. Your relationship with Allah is not rooted in what you do in front of other people. Your relationship with Allah is rooted in something else. You know? That's very true. That's a very profound answer. Um, tell me more about Rawasi. Tell me about how that started um, since it's quite new. Yeah, so, with, uh, so what I realized after doing conscious for some time now, is that there was a need for a specific focus on mental health. Mental health and Islam. So, like I said, I worked for a Muslim mental health organisation. I wanted to kind of get a feel of the field, field and everything. But what I realised is that there was a gap. Because, like I said, even if someone is... Uh, Muslim mental health... Shouldn't, it shouldn't be the case that someone happens to be Muslim and therefore they are now qualified to speak on Islam, right? Like I remember going to a Muslim mental health seminar once and the person who was delivering it, he was a Muslim, but he was saying things that were factually incorrect, <laughs> like like unambiguously incorrect, <laughs> you know, like they were factually in- in- incorrect. And it just made me realize that it's a responsibility, 
that if you're assuming that position of teaching people of trying to help them and trying to facilitate their growth and their healing and their well-being it needs to be done with knowledge it needs to be done with a good foundation so i told myself khair like alhamdulillah allah's blessed me with both backgrounds so i need to use it however the reason i didn't take the counseling route is because the counseling route comes with its kind of specifics you know like there's it comes with its specifics like counseling needs to be done in a certain way mm. there's certain things you can say certain things you can't say a type of relationship you can have a type of relationship you can't have so i took the mentoring route yeah. that i'm going to mentor people so this is using both uh, the mental health background and the islamic background and it's also it's not the rawasi as an organization it's not meant to basically um, remedy someone who's dealing with mental illness like they have a deficit in their mental health that's for a professional yeah. right what it's supposed to do is supposed to help people de- self-help help mm. people self-help so they have tools to develop this well-being and this stability and this resilience that are rooted in islam and with a touch of mental health so the focus is not on mental health or modern day psychology because it's only good in so far as it aligns with islamic teachings mm. right and that's why we're able to kind of filter through it that if you're looking through it, looking at it through an Islamic lens, you can filter through it. That this works, this aligns with Islam. This doesn't work, this doesn't align with Islam. So something, a recent conversation I was having with my mentees was about boundaries and expectations and setting boundaries in your relationships. And we were talking about how with parents, there needs to be delicacy there. We're not saying don't have any boundaries with your parents, right? We're just saying be delicate about it. Because in Islam, parents are su- held at such a high esteem. But in, in currently in my counselling course that I'm doing, like when we discuss these things, because it's part and parcel of the course that you discuss, like per, it's part of like, it's called PD, like personal development and stuff. Like the experiences that my colleagues or my, my classmates, they share <coughs> about their familial relationships they shock me like it's just like yeah i stopped talking to them a long time ago you know or like i'm estranged from my sibling or whatever like it's just like stuff that's so foreign to us <laughs> you know and that so that's the thing with rawasi the intention was to have a separate organization where we focus on islam but with mental health as well and it's more focused so it's more like focus and specific guidance and assistance that's i mean i've seen one of your recent um i think it was a seminar or webinar and i remember thinking you know, that's actually so much needed. I think it was for sixth form students who sort of had exams or something coming up. I don't remember during my whole sort of academia time from GCSE to, to finishing university, um, having Islam and academia and dealing with stress and dealing with... So I remember looking at I was like, oh, I wish I had that. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's um, and I'm yet to see more of like, look into sort of what you've done like outside of this, inshallah. Why did you call it Rawasi? What's the meaning? Okay, I have to give, I have to on camera, I have to give my sister credit. It's shame okay. that my older sister, she's already came up with the name. Okay. So Rawasi, it's a word that's used oftentimes in the Quran. It's mentioned multiple times in the Quran. Rawasi is the plural of mountains. So it means, it means a mountain range basically rawasi it means a mountain range and the reason i gave it this name khadija is because i genuinely believe that once a person has iman yeah then they become firmly grounded, grounded. like a mountain yeah. you know like once you have faith it's like it links with what we were saying earlier about the quran being shifa and the quran have it being such a powerful tool to being strong and being resilient and being able to overcome challenges including those to do with our mental health so rawasi is kind of the aspiration i have for everyone who works with us that they get to a point in their life you know, because it's multifaceted. We talk about mental health, spiritual health, and relational well-being. So all three of these areas are what we focus on. And for them to, by the end of the program, be able to say that 
I feel stronger in all of these areas. I feel like I'm able to navigate all of these areas with, with like, with knowledge now, you know, and with these new skill, this new skill set and these new tools I've developed and I've tried out and I've tested and they work for me, you know. So Rawasi is just like the aspiration we have for people to just because the, in after, you know, being exposed to mental health and being in the field of mental health and psychology, I feel like it's turning into something that people are falling back on as an excuse from going forward, mm. if that makes sense. And I know that's a bit harsh, but I believe that the human being has the capacity to push through difficult circumstances. Yani, like the, the, the innate human capacity for resilience, basically, is what I'm referring to. And so... I feel like even if someone is really struggling, struggling with their mental health, they can come out of it. They can come out of it and they can be better and they can be stronger and they can be able to uh, pick themselves up after a relapse. And obviously what I'm saying needs to be taken with a grain of salt because there are people who need that assistance. So I always give this analogy whenever we're giving our well-being workshops that if someone has a plaster, uh, sorry, has a cut on their finger, right? Then it's fine. They can remedy that themselves. They can clean it up, you know, they can put a plaster on and it's good to go. But if they have a stab wound, they can't just clean it up and put a plaster and they're good to go. They need to go to a professional, yeah. right? So going to seek help is important and necessary if you need it. Mm. But if you need it, you know, there are there's a lot of things to do with our mental health, like stress, for example, is what that webinar was focusing on, on or sadness, not grief, sadness. Grief is different. It's more chronic, and you need someone else. Yeah. You know, you need, it's different. It's completely different ball game. But these normal kind of human emotions that we have, there's ways within embedded within our deen, you know, to navigate it and to become stronger as a person. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to do with this organization, to pick out those things and to present it to people in a way that's easy to understand and to digest. It's a, it's a very beautiful um, name for it. And now I know the meaning, it sort of really stands out. And I agree what you were saying with sort of resilience. Um, and it's true what you're saying, sort of, you're trying to bring, you could, people can push through and it really relies on environmental factors. They can really affect and sort of dictate how a person does respond to certain situations and actually they might not find themselves in the same, uh, in the same paths or in the same trajectory if, you know, they're supported in certain ways. Um, so I think, yeah, Rawasi sounds amazing and inshallah it continues to benefit people and, and grow, um, inshallah, and mm. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rewards you for it. Um, we spoke about conscious, we spoke about sort of this whole background of Islamic studies and teachers and everything. I want to ask you about your Islamic studies journey. I want to ask you about loads of questions to ask because I think the loads of people who, um, I mean, I myself am asking, you know, when we start, before starting Quran, before starting anything, you feel sometimes really overwhelmed, uh, Islamic studies, uh, Quran, and you almost want to kind of up and out and just travel to another country <laughs> and, you know, just do everything at once. So, Talk me through your journey and then let's get some advice. Mm -hmm. So Khadija, you know, so many people come to me and they say that I want to study the deen yeah. or I want to do X, Y, Z, like I want to memorize Quran. I want And specifically when it comes to studying the deen, this is always the response I give. I say, define your intention. Be crystal clear about what you want to get out of studying Islam. Because the Islamic sciences, they're very, uh, there's a lot of breadth there. 
you know we're talking about loads of different there's stuff that i've learned khadija i've literally sat there thinking this like this is so so niche and so like specific right especially when it comes to fiqh, fiqh. because it, right like fiqh, fiqh that's the whole point of fiqh yeah. to find the most like yeah it feels, it feels like, like that <laughs> wait until you hear about mantik like mantik's like logic right logic and and that kind of thing so that's also very mathematical in terms of its um you know its approach and so there are certain sciences that are not relevant to someone who doesn't have the intention to be a scholar for example define your intention if your intention is that i want to build my ilm so that i'm in a good place personally like i have a good solid foundation i can help my family i can raise my kids in like on islamic ethos and all of that then you have a different path to take there's a certain path that you take right if someone's like i'm just curious like i don't really know if this is for me but i want to test it out you have a certain path to take and if there's someone who's like i want to actually become a scholar like i actually want to become a scholar then there's a path that you take you know like the path differs based on your intention and i'm not talking about your intention in terms of your relationship with allah the separate up to you that's personal private whatever i'm talking about your tangible goal and what's your tangible goal for for studying the deen and once you're able to define your tangible goal then you can figure out your path. So for me, my tangible goal was like, I'm a go big or go home kind of person. So I was like, yes, I want to become a scholar who serves the ummah. You know, that was my goal. That was my objective from day one. And that's actually why I traveled because I knocked on many doors within my locality to find someone who can help me get there. And I didn't get the response that I needed. And because I was so serious about this intention and this goal, I was willing to travel thousands of miles until I got it. right but not everyone has to make that journey <laughs> not everyone has to make that sacrifice you know there's other sacrifices that people need to make based on their intention based on their tangible goal right so in terms of my pursuit of the islamic sciences and it's ongoing you know like you never stop that was kind of very important and significant for me that how what do you want what do you want um to out um to get out of this and the reason this is so significant and important is because it will keep you going on the journey because when you're listening to those fiqh classes right it about very specific scenarios and situations and your brain feels like it's about to explode you're like okay well i can't do, want to become a scholar without reading through the works of scholars without making the sacrifices that the scholars made without having that suhba that companionship and that mentorship with a senior with a teacher that the, these scholars had right i have to take the path that they took if i want to reach their level right but again i know how burdensome that can be and i know how difficult that is so define your intention define your tangible goal and then work your way accordingly and that's kind of however like anyone who asks me for advice that's kind of the journey i take them from that like, come let's think of your goal and then here are some resources here are some people that can connect you like that you know because it's not a one size fits all like one thing i always tell people because people always ask me where i studied and they're really curious like where did i study and i say look are you asking for yourself like is it because you're trying to figure out where you should study if that's the case let me tell you this trying to find somewhere to study is like choosing a spouse like i know that's a like random analogy <laughs> it's a random analogy you need to find the person that fits you that suits you that's compatible for you you need to think about the things that are very important to you the things that you value the things that you need right and then you choose accordingly meaning yani what works for me and i had an amazing experience for example right might not work for you right there there are people that i'm sure you know they they you give you give them two specific advice you say go here and go there and then they go there and they're disappointed 
right? So th- there's so much kind of, um, uh, yani, it needs to be tailor-made. Yeah. Your intention needs to be tailor-made, which you just d- discover yourself. And then the journey is tailor-made. And that feel that shouldn't feel burdensome. Like, oh my God, I have to figure all these things out. Because like I said, this is a, this path is an act of worship. Meaning the one who you're doing it for will facilitate it. You know, you just need to define your intention, start making the steps, and then the path will pave itself. Yeah, no, definitely. And would you say that um, kind of, are you at the end of your journey or what's next in terms of Islamic studies? So tell us more, a little bit about what you did in your Animiya studies mm-hmm. and then sort of what next? Yeah, so I'm definitely not at the end. Like, even though the kind of foundational, formal, kind of initial years that a person tends to do, alhamdulillah, we completed it this summer, I'm definitely not at the end. Because the thing, the nature of studying the deen is that there's certain skills that you develop, right, throughout the course of your studies, whether it's reading, comprehension, writing, research, whatever it is, answering questions, all these things, you develop these skills. Now, these skills are important and useful when you're working in the community, but you need to keep them up. Yeah. You need to keep using them. And it's harder to do when you're not kind of under the that kind of rigid routine of period one, period two, period three. Like you have like periods or classes, they call it periods in America. Like you have classes throughout the day and like you know that you have a set routine, you're able to catch your teacher in the corridor and ask about this question. Like that kind of convenience or I wouldn't call it convenience, but structure. That kind of structure that you have, you don't have after you've graduated from like your formal studies or your foundational studies. So there's a lot of self-study that's supposed to happen after you graduate. The reason I say it's supposed to is because it's hard. And I was not ready for that. I was not ready for that jump of kind of like being very committed during my, when I was in as a full-time student versus now a graduate. Because the thing is, Khadija, there's two things that I want to mention about this, is that when you work in the community, and the thing in my case is because I was already working in the community before I graduated, and now the opportunities or the things that are now on my plate have doubled, right, now that I'm not a full-time student. So yeah. there's a lot of output. Mm-hmm. And I'm realising that my output has become disproportionate for my input. Before it was the opposite, that my input was very abundant because I was seeking knowledge the whole day. Yes. And then my output was minimal. That is yeah. just like once a week here and there, like once a month, like here and there, you know, like it was, but now it's like the opposite. So I'm realizing now that in terms of like my continuation of studies, I definitely have the intention to continue, inshallah. But the, it needs to take a different form now. It needs to look a bit different, right? And obviously, inshallah, like if Allah facilitates for me, like one dua I make as often as I can is that Allah never deprives me of the gatherings of knowledge. Because just being in those gatherings, it's like a gathering of angels, it's a gathering you never want to separate yourself from. And so... Um, Right now, it's like kind of self-study. Like I'm studying to, to teach or like I'm trying my best to kind of have a routine and a regimen for myself. But there's nothing that compares to being kind of under the wing of your teachers. Yeah. And so the sooner I can get back under them, <laughs> the better, inshallah. But my diet is Allah just keeps us connected. Keeps us inshallah. connected. Yeah. yeah. So, Islam, my second to last question um, to you is about balance. Uh, very commonly asked question, but I think in particular to you because of Quran, Islamic studies and academia, and a background in academia, and you mentioned, um, I understand that you were doing your masters alongside your animia. Mm-hmm. Did you ever feel torn between the two and you felt like, okay, I'm, I'm not doing enough Islamic studies, I'm not doing enough this? And yeah, do you, because I, I guess that can be a feeling where you just feel like you're not good mm-hmm. in, enough in either one of them. And, and how did you overcome that if you did? Yeah, so I mean, <laughs> this is good 
I'm starting to realize it's actually bad. It's not good. I was going to say I'm just a multitasker. Like I'm someone who does a lot at the same time and that's my normal. And so that's part of it. But also Khadija, I never felt that, that they were separated. Like I never felt that. And that has a lot to do with like kind of the way that I was raised and like the way that my parents emphasize education and like just being someone who's like educated you know being someone who's educated someone that people will take seriously someone that, that people would associate credibility with in terms of spreading islam so if you're coming to someone and you're like you've had an education like you're not speaking to them in like a you're not because they don't like they don't value or recognize a more traditional kind of path to seeking knowledge so if you've come and you've said no i've actually studied up to master's level that automatically gives you credibility and why do we're not doing it for the sake of that credibility we're doing it to further this cause of islam right yeah. like that's the objective right of raising allah's word and mention and so for me and this was kind of the mentality and the lesson that my parents taught me that you uh doing your a levels going to uni is part and parcel of you giving da'wah in the future. This is your goal, Saura. Okay, take the take the proper path. You know, like take a proper path in the sense that uh, I'm not saying that this is the correct path or the only path, but proper path in the sense that do it with ihsan, do it with ihsan. Cover both grounds, right? Like it's not impossible. And like now, alhamdulillah, like when my I definitely feel like this has all contributed to my ability to give da'wah. You know. And not just from a theoretical perspective of having like the theoretical knowledge, but being in those environments. Now when I'm speaking to, for example, I speak at ISOCs a lot. Now when I'm speaking to girls at university. Legitimacy. Yeah, they, they know that I've been in your seat. You know, I've gone through what you've gone through. And so they value what I say. They value what I say because I'm not speaking from, I'm not looking from the outside in. Or worse, I'm not from like a different context or country and coming in and telling you how to 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 follow your dean or or that kind of thing. I'm coming from a shared lived experience, right? And that's why, like you know, in the, we were talking about the stories of the prophets earlier. Like there's there's emphasis about how they were from their people. Akhahum, for example, Allah talks about how it refers to the prophets as their brother from their family, from their people, right? Um, and so, yani, that's. That was also something that I kept in mind. And because, alhamdulillah, Khadija, this is not normal, but the fact that I had, I kind of defined my goal and intention from early on, even when I was going through university and college, I remember making a note of certain things. Like, I, I remember when I was in sick form and I was like struggling, right? Because I told you it was like a non Muslim environment and I was an only visible Muslim and there was a lot of like kind of Islamophobia, discrimination, all of that. I remember I wrote down. Like literally things that I do that keeps me grounded. Mm. Because I know that one day, inshallah, if it's my own children or other people's children, I'll have the opportunity to tell a young girl who was in my who's in my who was in my position, right? That I went through it too. And this is what Allah gave me the tawfiq to do, so try it out. You know? So for me personally, they were never separated. Like that kind of goal and intention I had as a teenager, I still have it today. And I kind of made the decisions along the way with that intention in mind so me going to university was literally so that i can achieve this goal of right um and so for me there were it was never a dichotomy and i know that's often it's often presented in that way like dean versus dunya no no no. you're in your dunya for your dean right you live in the dunya for your dean it's, it's so true yes I think that's one of my favorite points and one of my favorite answers that you've given today because 
I cannot emphasize how much needed it is in the West, where we are battled with obviously kind of pursuing, continuing formal education, like we do have pressures in our society, um, on top of being from Muslim background. So it's like two things pulling you, like you want to excel in your deen, you want to excel in kind of the other field as well, in like society. And I think the way you put it is honestly perfect, Sarah, because it's true, if it comes down to the intention, um, you can combine the two and I think we become more, we're on another platform in in the West and we can utilise it. Um, so I think that's such a lovely point and I think it's so um, insightful. On that, Khadija, if you don't mind, about us being in a certain position, right? There's our ability to call people to Islam is completely different to someone who's in a Muslim country, for example, right? Like people would always say things like, you know, I want to move to a Muslim country. You're thinking about you. You're thinking about yourself. Allah put you in an environment surrounded by pe- by people who don't even know who Allah is, who don't even know what's in this blessed book, who don't know who Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam is, and you have the opportunity to show them, to teach them, right? You have that opportunity, right? And for for someone to kind of dismiss that or feel like agitated by that, you know, like I remember there was one. Uh, Sheikh, I can't remember his name, but he was basically talking about this point about people wanting to move to Muslim countries. And then he was saying, um, that stand wherever Allah placed you. Like, take on your role and your responsibility with both hands. That Allah's put you in this environment for a reason, right? And, like, just honestly, Khadija, like, I genuinely believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will honor people who were in this context and they struggled so hard to hold on to their iman, but they did so anyway. Allah will honor them more than those who found ease and convenience and they didn't have to struggle for their faith. So, the position that we're in is actually a very noble one. And whenever I have the opportunity to speak to professionals like yourself, I honestly commend you because. It's so uncomfortable. <laughs> it's so uncomfortable to be the only Muslim in the room. It's so uncomfortable to have to explain yourself every five seconds, why you do certain things, why you need to get up for prayer breaks and, and that kind of thing. But the 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 opportunity you have in that position is unique and special. Um, like I, I recently went to Spain. It was like an Islamic trip, like a educational kind of historical trip. And you know in the... Uh, in, the Cordoba Mosque, Mosque Church. So it's like a yeah. currently functioning I've church. Yeah, so it's, it's subhanAllah, it's very interesting experience. There's only one woman there who is a Muslim, a tour guide. All the rest of them are not Muslims. She's the only Muslim tour guide. And we split up because our group was very big. So we split up people. We all had different tour guides. And she said, and they were saying that she's this tour guide, this woman. By the way, she doesn't look. She doesn't wear hijab. She doesn't look Muslim. Like you wouldn't think that she's a Muslim from, from far. But she uses this opportunity to teach people about Islam. And I literally just felt to myself that this woman must be very special to Allah because she's in an impossible situation. A situation where if anyone who's been there understands and appreciates this, that they're very on edge when Muslims come in. If they see you even looking like you're praying or you're doing anything religious, you'll get kicked out immediately, right? Because of the whole hostile kind of history and everything. But the fact that this woman is the only Muslim in that influential role and environment, this is like... Inshallah, an honor for her. I mean, Allah accept it from her. Okay. But that stand wherever um, Allah has placed you. You know, like to just take take your take your position with honor. Sarah, it's honestly been so enjoyable, so interesting, genuinely, um, and for your time and for your perspective. And I think 
it's been such good conversation um, and I really, really like, there's so much to digest and inshallah it's of, um, of, of benefit firstly to myself. Um, so may Allah reward you and um, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. فللقرآن فلنبذل ونسعى فغيث الفضل هتان غزير نعيم في الحياة ومكرمات وفي الأخرى إلى الخلد المصير وفي الأخرى إلى الخلد المصير